0: Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. I hope you are doing well. Today is part two in our series on one of Australia's greatest explorers, John McDouall Stewart. In part one of our series, we learned about McDouall Stewart, his upbringing in Scotland, his arrival in Australia at the age of 23 in 1838, and the experience he gained as a surveyor in the 1840s and 50s, in the fledgling colony of South Australia. We also went with McDowell Stewart on the expedition that found Cooper's Creek, which was led by Charles Sturt. That's Sturt, S-T-U-R-T, not to be confused with our explorer, Stewart. We then followed Stewart on his first expedition, of Discovery, as he and two other men ventured into the Australian interior, becoming the first Europeans to reach Chambers Creek, plus the future opal capital of the world, Cooper Pedy. Stewart had done a remarkable job, journeying for 3 months on only 6 weeks of supplies he and his team had uncovered thousands of miles of territory this greatly interested the land hungry speculators back in Adelaide the capital of South Australia today we are going to cover the second third and fourth expeditions of stuart the first two are not the most important endeavors but they do push our story further and further into the australian interior these two expeditions are more about searching for water grazing land and gold than making a push to cross the continent The fourth expedition, however, will do exactly that, with Stuart taking aim at the continent center and eventually the north coast. This will be in direct competition with the Victorian Exploring Expedition, which was being organized in Melbourne. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let us jump back to early 1859. Stuart had returned from his first expedition, and as he was considered the discoverer, I use air quotes there, of Chambers Creek, he was granted the rights to a thousand acres of pasture in the region. But Stewart wanted more than that, so he offered to return to Chambers Creek and survey the land himself. The result would be Stewart's second expedition, this financed by pastoralist James Chambers and William Fink. These men understood that reliable water on the western side of the region's large salt lakes would be very valuable, plus they wanted to poke around for signs of gold and other minerals. The expedition would consist of Stewart plus 3 men and 14 horses. The other members of Stewart's expedition were David Hergast, Louis Muller, and a man only known as Campbell. Hergott was a Bavarian naturalist and artist, while Muller was a botanist. Both had experience in the Australian goldfields. Campbell is referred to as a stockman, which is similar to a ranch hand. Also, as a note, in Australia, ranches are called stations. I have thus far used both terms. So, as with his first expedition, Stuart focused on staying light and nimble. Such a strategy had served him well previously. There were no tents, each man only having a blanket to sleep with. Food consisted of flour, jerked beef, tea, sugar, and tobacco. In addition to a watch and compass, Stuart brought along a sextant for more accurate readings, plus a telescope. Stuart left Oratanga Station on April 2, 1859, only six months after returning from his first expedition. This time he traveled north along the eastern side of Lake Torrens. This route had been blazed only months earlier by Peter Edgerton Warburton. He is often referred to as Major Warburton. He was the Commissioner of Police for South Australia, but was more interested in exploring than policing. I want to remind everyone that you can see Stuart's route by going to our website, explorerspodcast.com. I have put links to some outstanding maps of each of Stuart's expeditions that come from the John McDouald Stuart Society website. They are far better than anything I could make. Plus, the site has lots of information about Stuart for those who are interested in learning more. I also want to note that the area we are covering in Stuart's first and second expeditions is dominated by two large lakes, Lake Torrens is about 250 miles or 400 kilometers north of Adelaide, South Australia's capital, and not far north of that is Lake Eyre. Both are saltwater lakes. Warburton had gone up the eastern side of Lake Torrens and headed west, finding a route between the two lakes. Stewart intended to follow that trail to Chambers Creek. The expedition would quickly run into many of the same problems that they faced the previous year. Waterholes were dry or filled with salt water and the horses came up lame because they lost shoes. Stuart took days off on a regular basis, just to rest the horses. Another issue that arose was about a week into the journey, when Stuart got sick drinking the water. He was incapacitated for several days. During this time, he sent out his men to search for water. It is during one of these excursions that Hurdott found a dozen mound springs at a place that today is called Mare, which is roughly between Lake Torrens and Lake Eyre, but a bit east. Major sources of water were always of interest to Stuart, and I want to take a sidetrack and talk about this. What Hergot had found what's called a mound spring, which are found along the faults in the Earth's surface. A mound spring occurs when the salt in the water builds up and forms a small hill. These mounds can be as high as 160 feet or 50 meters. And the cool thing is that the water comes out of these springs like a volcano. So, where is this water coming from? Well, the answer is the Great Artesian Basin. This is a massive underwater reservoir that covers much of the eastern half of the continent. It is the largest and deepest artesian basin in the world. It covers more than 660,000 square miles, or 1.7 million square kilometers, and stretches from the very top of the continent and all the way down into South Australia. It provides the only source of fresh water throughout much of inland Australia. Now, no one at the time had any clue about this massive reservoir of water, but it is the main reason that you find water sources in the interior of the continent. I share this because before I started this podcast, I did wonder, where the heck was this water coming from? And the answer is the Great Artesian Basin. Sidetrack done. Stewart spent more than a week recovering his health. His team often let the horses wander, as they have an instinctive nose for finding water. Eventually, the team moved onward, heading northwest between the two big saltwater lakes that dominate the region. The trail between Lake Torrens and Lake Eyre was rough, and the men were always on the lookout for water. When they found it, it was often too salty to drink. Regarding the aboriginal people, Stuart tried to speak with them when he could, but for the most part, they stayed clear of the four white men and their string of horses. As a note, Stuart had strict rules regarding the aboriginal people. They were not to be fired upon unless in self-defense. If they were aggressive, he avoided them. His goal was always to try and engage them and find out information from them, usually the location of water sources. In the end, this made most of his encounters amicable. I want to comment on this lack of interaction between Stuart and the aboriginal people. I've mentioned for many of them, the first time they saw Stuart and his team was perhaps the first time they had ever seen a white man and horses. But I want to stress that while they may have never seen a European, they had likely heard of them. The aboriginal people had a robust and lively trade and communication network. There was a thing called songlines, which were major walking routes linking sites and locations, the song line describes the features and directions of travel included in a song that had to be sung and memorized by a person to know the route to their destination. Ultimately, this meant that, despite the great distances, information flowed routinely throughout the continent. That meant that when Stuart encountered Aboriginal people, they likely knew about the problems associated with them. This included violence, the seizing of land, enslavement, and the destruction of the natural environment. So it is no wonder that when the aboriginal people saw Stuart and his team, they stayed clear. On April 26th, the expedition reached the area around Chambers Creek. Stuart spent nearly two weeks surveying these lands. After completing a survey, Stuart headed north on May 9th. A few days later, he came upon some more springs, naming the area Elizabeth Springs. He praised the region, writing, quote, There is enough running water to drive a flour mill in two or three places, end quote. One thing Stewart had learned from his previous expedition was to bring more horseshoes, and because of the rough and rocky terrain, he needed them. The expedition was constantly stopping to reshoe their horses. Stewart and his men continued into the interior, eventually reaching a place called the Davenport Ranges. The goal here was to prospect for minerals, especially gold. They had little success. On May 20th, the ranch hand, Campbell, was sent back to Orotanga Station with reports on their progress. Stewart would continue prospecting and exploring into mid-June. Water was a big issue in one stretch, with the men and horses going three days without it. The horses were so exhausted that, once they did find water, they were given three days to recover. The team continued to explore, finding several other springs, including one they called the Spring of Hope. But then, on June 12th, Stewart decided it was time to turn around. The horse's shoes were run down, and his food was low. Plus, he was ill again. The expedition had reached a bit north of what is modern day Unadetta, about 60 miles or 100 kilometers from the border of South Australia and the Northern Territory. On July 29th, Stewart was back at Chambers Creek. From there, it was a familiar route to a frontier outpost. He then rode to Port Augusta and from there caught a boat to Adelaide. And with that, the second expedition of John McDouall Stewart was complete. So, this expedition had pushed into the Australian interior about 100 miles or 160 kilometers past the northernmost point of the first expedition. But just as important, it had found new, reliable water sources that could be used for future exploration. The veil of Australia's interior was slowly being pulled back. And so, the year was 1859, and I want to talk about two things that were going on that affect our story. The first was exploration fever. The world had caught it. No place more so than Great Britain. This was about the deeds of people like Livingston, Burton, and Speke and finding places such as the source of the Nile. It was about filling in the blank spaces on the map. Explorers were heroes. They strove to tame the unknown lands and put a face on it. Newspapers loved telling these tales, and people loved reading about them. Australia was not immune to this fever. And you know what? The continent was still more unexplored than explored. People were clamoring for someone to fill in the big blank on the map. Now, I will combine exploration fever with our next topic, and that is economics, specifically regarding communication, and that means the telegraph. The telegraph had been around for decades, but in Stuart's life, the technology involved and the ability to implement it in the real world was evolving rapidly. Great Britain was at the forefront of this as their empire was growing all over the world. The ability to communicate quickly and accurately was thus a key component in their strategy of maintaining and expanding their colonies. For years, there was talk about extending the telegraph to the growing colony of Australia, and as the technology improved and the demand grew, well, entrepreneurs jumped into the fray to meet such demand. Now, I want to stress that Australia was, at this time, still very sparsely settled. Most of the population was on the eastern and southern coasts, especially the southeast, so you needed to get your telegraph lines to those regions. The key was for someone to offer a practical and economically viable way to do this. Well, there were talks of running undersea cables to the southwest or southeast of the continent. An example was a cable going from Sri Lanka to western Australia. But this meant really, really long underwater routes. The Sri Lanka to Australia cable would need to be at least 3,000 miles or 5,000 kilometers. All this was very expensive and not the most reliable. The shortest viable route to Australia was from the island of Java to the northern coast of Australia and then overland to the southern coast. This underwater cable was just a quarter of the distance compared to the proposed Sri Lankan one. This meant that the shortest route was an undersea line going from Java to the north coast of Australia and combined with an overland route going to the southern coast. In Adelaide, it was quickly pointed out that an overland route to that city was the shortest option available. However, the folks in Melbourne were not going to concede that point. They argued that a line could be run from the Gulf of Carpentaria to their city and Melbourne was a far more sophisticated, wealthy, and cultured city compared to the frontier settlement of Adelaide. But there was more to it than just a telegraph cable for Victoria. Victoria was hemmed in at this time. To the north was New South Wales, to the west was South Australia. And while the area northwest of Victoria was technically part of New South Wales, it was unsettled. For Victoria, they felt the telegraph line to Melbourne would lead to an expansion into the interior, and thus Victoria would organically expand at the expense of its neighbors. In their minds, the region was empty, so it was fair game to take it if the chance arose. Victoria's expansion desires aside, getting the telegraph would mean money, influence, and prestige. The place where news and information flowed into Australia and out of it would be the most important communication hub on the continent. The big problem for people both in Victoria and South Australia was that no one really knew what lay in the middle of the continent. The Great Inland Sea idea that everyone had talked about was proving to be a big bust, So, what was there? Well, to push this issue into the forefront, the government of South Australia offered up a 2,000-pound prize to the person who crossed the continent and identified a route from the northern coast to Adelaide for the telegraph line. In Victoria, the government responded to Adelaide's actions by setting out to organize an expedition to do the same thing, only this from the north coast to Melbourne. An exploration committee was formed and money was raised to fund such an endeavor. However, things went slowly for Victoria. Even after a thousand-pound donation to the fund, money was slow to come in. And this gave South Australia a window of opportunity to move first. And when Stuart returned from his second expedition, he was keen to take up the challenge. His influential friends, the Chambers brothers and William Fink, lobbied the South Australian government to select him to lead a new expedition into the interior. So, who would the government turn to in this situation? The decorated explorer who had gone deeper into the interior than any living European, the man who had the backing of some of the colony's most wealthy and influential men? Nope. Instead, a police officer, Alexander Tolmer, was selected. The result would be a complete bust. Tolmer never made it out of the already explored areas. Now, not getting tapped to lead the expedition did not stop John McDougal Stewart. One of the reasons Stuart was so eager to get going was that he ran into some issues with his recent survey. It seems that after his first expedition, others had taken his reports and followed up quickly, and already gone out and surveyed some of the lands themselves. This meant that Stewart again had to return to Chambers Creek and resurvey the land he wanted to claim. Plus, his financial backers wanted him to survey some lands that they were interested in acquiring. And with that, John McDowell Stewart set out on his third expedition. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? Stuart's expedition set out from Adelaide in August of 1859. The makeup was similar to his previous expedition. Now, I want to comment on something regarding the makeup of this group. Many sources say Stuart had with him three other men when he departed in August. But in his journals, he references four different men. So I'll take the latter, four, as accurate. My guess is that he added an extra man along the way, but I can't be sure. Anyhow, Stuart's expedition would consist of himself, four additional men, and a dozen horses. The party included two stockmen named Strong and Smith, I couldn't find their first names, plus Lewis Muller, who had been on the previous expedition. The fourth was a man named William Darton Keckwick. Keckwick was the second-in-command, and he is an important part of the rest of this podcast series. He will become Stuart's most trusted and capable companion for the rest of his career. Keckwick was 37 years old and had come to Australia in 1840 from England. He had experience in the goldfields of Victoria and was a first-rate bushman and while he didn't have scientific training, he was well-versed in the subject of botany. He will be the rock that Stuart leans on over the next few years, a steadfast and resolute friend and colleague. The expedition took the now-established trail along the eastern side of Lake Torrens and then cut across the top of the lake to Chambers Creek. Here, Stuart began another survey of the region. He would complete his survey by the end of October and on November 4th, set out north for Emerald Springs. I want to point out that this third expedition does not break a lot of ground with regards to pushing northwards into the interior of the continent. Stewart's route is not a straight line. In fact, it looks like someone scribbled a bunch of lines on a map. On his second expedition, he had traveled in the area around Chambers Creek to conduct his survey, but the push north was mostly a straight line. This time, however, his route is all over the place. East, west, north, south. Stewart was mapping the entire region, not just trying to push further into the interior. Anyhow, Stuart and his team headed towards the western side of Lake Eyre. That there was a big lake, albeit a saltwater one, was encouraging as it was a prime location to find fresh water and grazing lands. And let us not forget about gold and other minerals. Once at Lake Eyre, Stuart found great expanses of dried up shoreline. It was hard, white sand. He tried to take the horses into it, but it eventually got soft and the horses couldn't continue. The ground was three inches of salt with mucky clay underneath. Stewart wanted to reach the actual lake and continued on foot, but eventually it was just a suck hole of mud and muck and he had to turn around. Stewart and his team continued to search the region. Generally, he would set up a camp and dispatch his men, often in pairs, to go looking for water and potential grazing lands. Stewart would go on these excursions as well, but to be honest, he often ended up at the base camp due to problems with his eyes. I mentioned this last time, surveying in the desert, which requires conducting sun sightings, is brutal on the eyes. The sun literally damages the retinas. This can cause long-term issues, including pain and even blindness. On November 11th, Stewart wrote, My eyes are so bad I cannot see. The next day he couldn't even move due to the intense pain. The team would eventually have some successes identifying waterholes and grazing lands, and Stewart was thoroughly mapping the region, setting himself and others, up for further pushes into the interior regarding the aboriginal people they remained elusive the party glimpsed them here and there but they shied away from the newcomers regarding water i read something interesting that i want to share i've mentioned that a lot of the water sources found by stuart were filled with salt water however just because there's salt in them doesn't make them undrinkable sometimes he'd find waterholes where the water was actually fresh under a layer of salt water the horses would plunge their snouts into the waterhole about 6 inches deep through the layer of salt water, to reach the drinkable water below. It wasn't necessarily the best water, but in a pinch, it helped everyone stay alive. That really has nothing to do with our story, but I thought it was sort of cool. On November 20th, the Stockman Smith skedaddled from camp during the night. This infuriated Stuart, who prized loyalty and hard work. He called Smith a, quote, lazy, insolent, good-for-nothing man, end quote. He considered sending Keckwick after the deserter, but decided they were better off without him. Stuart's main concern was that he had taken one of the horses. I want to mention that when out in the bush, Stuart ran a tight ship. Men couldn't drink from their canteens without permission. Meals were at a set time. The horses were not abused. No one left the camp without a weapon. Swearing was not allowed. Sometimes Stuart can seem harsh, but the desertion of Smith aside, he was usually praised for being fair and even-handed, with all the rules applying to himself as well as his men. Benjamin Head said this of Stuart, Whatever he said was law and bound to be obeyed. End quote. All this made Stewart's expedition run efficiently and with little fuss. In early December, Stewart found himself nearly blind, and the pain was so bad he couldn't sleep. All he could do was try and keep out of the sun and let his eyesight improve with time. It was frustrating for Stewart, who had to delegate most of the exploring to his team. Thankfully, Keckwick was proving to be an outstanding number two. Stewart would write this of the man: "Keckwick is everything I wish a man to be." He is active, pushing, and persevering. At any time and at any moment, he is always ready and takes a pleasure in doing all that lies in his power to forward the expedition. End quote. He was not so kind to the other two men, Muller and Strong. One of Stuart's problems was that he thought that every person could and should endure the same hardships he could endure. So when food ran low and the team went on half rations, he expected them to manage without complaint. Regarding rations, Stuart had a blind spot about what a man needed. He was a small guy, yet he expected a man twice his weight to eat the same amount of food. But it just doesn't work that way. A 250-pound man needs a lot more food than a 130-pound man. In late December, the expedition reached a place called Freeling Springs. Here, Stewart began an extensive search for gold. He felt that the conditions were ideal for it, but in the end, they had no luck. When signs of gold proved elusive, Stewart continued mapping the area and then on January 6, 1860, with provisions running low and his men on half rations, he elected to return to Chambers Creek. Stewart's health continued to be spotty, some days unable to travel due to the pain in his eyes, plus back pains. Advanced scurvy had turned his legs black and his limbs ached. The expedition reached Chambers Creek on January 21st. Supplies had been brought to the location by another team, a boon to Stewart and the men. Despite his ailing health, Stewart was keen to head back north. He had another prize on his mind, the sender of Australia, and even crossing to the north coast. Such a venture would net him the 2,000-pound bounty offered by the South Australian government. However, two of Stuart's men, Muller and Strong, were done. They had been out in the wilderness for four months. It was summer. The heat was brutal. They were suffering from malnutrition and exhaustion, and probably scurvy. They wanted to go back to civilization. Stuart would curse the men for abandoning him, but to be honest, you can't blame them. What they were doing was brutal work, and the men were exhausted and sick. The last thing they wanted was to sign up for another round of it. And thus, Stuart sent Keckwick south to gather fresh provisions and more men. Stuart would be able to regain his health while he waited for Keckwick's return. And that effectively ends Expedition No. 3. Stuart had not pushed further north on this expedition, instead branching out and mapping big parts of the area just west of Lake Eyre. He had identified trails, waterholes, and grazing lands. Now, we know that Stewart had contact with other people while at Chambers Creek, and that's because he found out that the man who deserted back in November, Smith, had managed to make it back to the settled districts, although in a, quote, most forlorn condition, end quote. And because he had news of Smith, it's almost certain he had news of the Victorian Exploring Expedition being organized in Melbourne. The Victorian Exploring Expedition, or the VEE, promised to spare no expense, in the end reportedly costing upwards of 10,000 pounds. There were going to be camels imported from India, plus horses, wagons, and nearly a dozen men. The plan was to take the expedition to Cooper's Creek and then strike out for the Gulf of Carpentaria in the north. The committee running the entire endeavor organized the details, hiring men, equipment, and making plans for the crossing. But they actually wouldn't hire someone to command the entire thing until June of that year. And that would be Robert O'Hara Burke, an Irishman and a former British Army officer. At the time, he was the police superintendent of Castlemaine, which is about 50 miles or 85 kilometers northwest of Melbourne. Burke had no experience as an explorer and almost none in the outback. Now, Stuart didn't know the details of the expedition, but he knew he had one advantage over them, and that was time. If he set out on his next expedition by spring of that year, he would be able to beat the Victorian Exploring Expedition out of the gate by several months. For Stuart, this new enterprise was quite different from anything he had done before. This time, his goal was to press forward and blaze a trail, nothing more. And that kicks off John McDowell Stewart's fourth expedition. William Keckwick returned to the base camp at Chambers Creek with 13 horses loaded with supplies and provisions, but only one additional man. Stewart was disappointed by Keckwick's inability to add others, but he would make do. The new man's name was Benjamin Head. Head had been born in Cornwall and arrived in Australia in 1854. He was around 25 years old. He was a big and tall man, over 200 pounds. He had worked for John Chambers at one of his stations. He will prove to be a reliable and hard-working man. The three men departed Chambers Creek on March 2, 1860. Again, they would be moving light and fast. The good part is that for a couple hundred miles, or 320 kilometers, Stuart knew exactly what route to take and where to find water. This was because of the work done on his previous expeditions. And Stewart was not going to be messing around with side excursions. His team was heading north and only veering from that route unless needed. This was not about finding grazing lands or minerals. It was an expedition of discovery. On just the second day out, Stewart and his men would come upon a disturbing scene. They encountered a native camp where a melee had occurred. There were broken dishes, boomerangs, and spears scattered about, plus the body of an aboriginal man, his skull broken in three or four places. Crows and wild dogs, aka dingoes, had eaten parts of the body. It was a stark reminder of the potential dangers that lay ahead. In mid-March, Stuart ran into an issue he rarely encountered in Australia, too much rain. The weather had threatened rain for several days before finally arriving on March 10th. The men were forced to move their camp to higher ground to avoid flooding. But on the whole, the rain was an encouraging sign. Stuart wrote, The rain is a great boon to me, as it will give me both feed and water for my horses, and if it has gone northwest, it will save me a great deal of time looking for water, The one frustrating part of the rain was that it made areas boggy and impossible for the horses and men to travel through. This forced Stuart to have to pick his way through such terrain, which takes time. On May 16th, one of the horses, Billy, ended up stuck in the mud. Stuart and his men tried for hours to free Billy, but to no avail. Stuart was forced to leave the horse, and he lamented not having left the animal, who had been weak, back at Chambers Creek, a few days later, at the River Niels, near present-day Udineta, the expedition ran into some more heavy rains. Unfortunately, many of the supplies were soaked, and much of the food was ruined, and forced the men to go on reduced rations far earlier than anticipated. By the end of the month, the team stopped for a day to reshoe the horses and recuperate. Stewart reported that his right eye was now useless for making observations. He said he saw two suns when trying to use that eye. As the men moved north, there were signs of the Aboriginal people wherever they went sometimes large numbers of them. If anyone thought the interior of the continent was empty, Stewart knew they were wrong. Despite the signs of human activity, the expedition did not see anyone. Roughly three hundred miles or five hundred kilometers northwest of Chambers Creek, the team crossed what today is the border of South Australia and the Northern Territory. In doing this, Stewart was the first man to enter the state from the south. On April fourth, Stewart reached a river that he called the Think River, after one of his most supportive patrons, The Fink is one of four main rivers of the Lake Eyre Basin and thought to be the oldest riverbed in the world. A couple of days later, the team came upon a magnificent sandstone pillar sticking 160 feet, or 50 meters, out of the desert floor. Stewart called it Chambers Pillar in honor of another of his supporters, James Chambers. Stewart wrote that Chambers Pillar, and other such outcroppings, made for a striking landscape. He said it looked like a bunch of castle ruins in the midst of the sand. Looking at a photo of Chambers Pillar, which is easy to find online you can understand the comparison about 80 miles or 120 kilometers north of the Fink, stuart came to the macdonald ranges named after sir richard graves McDonough, the governor of south australia getting through the range was no simple task it was up and down bluffs and cliffs often on dangerous routes it was around this time that stuart reported the first signs of scurvy amongst the men the team worked their way through the mountain range and continued north a few days later they fought through a lot of scrub and brush Everyone was flagging both men and horses and then, on april twenty second eighteen sixty Stuart calculated his location, writing, quote, "I am now camped in the centre of Australia. End quote. The centre of Australia. This was a clear and measurable goal, one that any person could understand. Stuart was proud of what he had done the next day, he and Keckwick climbed a nearby mountain, built a cone of stones, and raised the Union Jack. They also left a piece of paper with Keckwick and his signatures in a bottle on top of the cone. In his journal, Stuart wrote this of the moment quote, We then gave three hearty cheers for the flag, the emblem of civil and religious liberty, and may it be a sign to the natives that the dawn of liberty, civilization, and Christianity is about to break upon them. End quote. Stuart's words were prophetic and heartbreaking in ways he did not intend. Anyhow, Stuart named the place Mount Sturt in honor of Charles Sturt, who had led the 1844 45 expedition that Stuart had been part of. The name, however, would not stick. Today, it is called Central Mount Stuart. Also, the location is not really the exact center of Australia, but for Stuart it was close enough. It was also hugely symbolic. It was one of those we-did-it moments. Europeans had reached the center of the continent, overcoming all that nature could throw at them. From there, the expedition moved north. Food and water continued to be in short supply. In May, Stuart and Head were suffering badly from scurvy. They found a well on May 6th and stayed there for several days while everyone recuperated, and drank as much as they desired. After that, the journey north was again plagued by a lack of water. The horses in particular were in bad shape, and scurvy had caused Stuart's hands to break out in a mass of sores that wouldn't heal. His mouth and gums were sore. He could only eat flour and boiled water. The pain in his limbs was ever-present. Stuart wrote, I almost wish death would come and relieve me from my torture, end quote. was mostly unaffected by scurvy, This allowed him to go out on excursions searching for water and roots when needed. On May 21st, things were looking bad. Stewart could barely move due to pains in his limbs and muscles, and water was nowhere to be found. Despite all of this, the men pressed north. Thankfully, a couple of days later, the rains arrived, rejuvenating the party. The next few weeks, the men went through plains and deserts and mountains. They often saw signs of aboriginal people, but rarely did they actually see people. On June 6th, the men reached what today is called Tennant Creek, about 500 miles or 800 kilometers from the north coast of Australia. Stewart elected to go northwest to try and reach the Victoria River, whose location was known. However, progress was difficult due to a lack of water. After several days, Stewart decided to turn around. To continue north into the unknown without water was suicide. On the return march, one horse had to be abandoned when it simply ran out of strength and laid down. The second horse suffered the same fate a few days later. It pained Stuart to leave behind the animals, but there was no choice. The company eventually backtracked their steps and reached a creek on June 13th. They had had no water for four days, and the men and horses would spend a week recovering. It is during this time that the expedition encountered the aboriginal people of the area. These people, who carried spears and boomerangs, kept their distance. When Stuart tried to approach them, they responded with signs of hostility. Thus, both sides kept apart from one another, but Stuart was wary. The long rest allowed the men and horses to recover, plus they reshoed the horses. Stuart reported his scurvy symptoms, easing with the rest. The local aboriginal people were in the area, the men often hearing their voices or seeing smoke from their campfires. The team set out north on June 19th, this time Stuart aiming to reach the Gulf of Carpentaria. Four days later, while resting their horses, the camp was visited by two young aboriginal people. They presented Stuart with four possums and some birds. Stuart said the two young men were obviously scared, but after a short time, they, quote, wanted to steal everything they could lay their fingers on, end quote. Stuart eventually had to shoo the young men away. The team did enjoy fresh meat that night, which they had not had in a long time. On June 26, 1860, in the early evening, things would go badly for Stuart and his team. At a place Stuart named Attack Creek, they were approached by the local Waramungu Aboriginal people, These were men waving their boomerangs overhead in a threatening manner. More and more people appeared out of the bushes and from behind hills. Stuart tried to give off signs of friendship, but the atmosphere remained tense. He ordered his men to ready their weapons. And then, as Stuart tried to lead his company away, the Waramungu attacked. Boomerangs showered down on Stuart and his party, and the grass surrounding the men and horses was set afire. Stuart said the Waramungu numbered at least 30, and then, when some of them charged, Stuart ordered his men to fire. The shots from Stewart's men kept back the attackers, allowing Ben Head to lead the horses away from the fray. Stewart later wrote that the Waramungu were, quote, bold and daring. We could be easily surrounded and destroyed by such determined fellows as they had shown themselves to be, Stuart Stewart wisely ordered his men to give up the field and go quickly back the way they had come. They did not stop the retreat until they reached the previous night's camp at 11 p.m. that evening. So why had the Waramungu attacked Stewart? Well, we really don't know for sure, but after talking to some people well-versed in the history of the Australian Aboriginal people, I'll throw out three things. First, Stuart was in the heart of Waramungu lands. Whether he realized it or not, he was an interloper. The Waramungu people likely felt strong and confident in such a situation. And second was resource scarcity. Stuart and his team, especially the horses, were using valuable resources, in this case water. Ten or so horses can easily drain a waterhole, depriving the locals of something they needed to survive. And let's not forget that even if the Waramungu had not ever encountered white people before, they had likely heard about them. Knowing what the newcomers had done to other aboriginal people, they may have decided it was best to drive away Stuart and his team. Anyhow, the next morning, Stuart would see fires all around him. He knew he could go no further at this time, writing, I have most reluctantly come to the determination... To abandon the attempt to make the Gulf of Carpentaria. End quote. That said, for about a week or so, Stuart persisted with finding an alternative route to the north. But it wasn't going to happen. The Aboriginal people hovered on the perimeter of Stuart's party, watching them closely. Plus, food was running low. Also, Keckwick was complaining of weakness, a sign scurvy was finally catching up to the man. It was foolish to try to go on. And so, a return march to Adelaide was before them, 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers through some of the harshest lands in the world. The men would face three major issues on this march, a lack of food, a lack of water, and scurvy. Regarding the latter, the men all suffered from aching limbs and gums. They had sores that wouldn't heal. Everyone was weak. On August 2nd, Stewart wrote, My men have now lost all their former energy and activity, and move about as if they were a hundred years old. Regarding food, the men were now on starvation rations. Stewart even caught Ben Head taking extra rations. The big man was just more affected by malnutrition than the others, it was said that he lost half of his body weight during the expedition. Stewart, by the way, did not take Head's thieving against him, as he will be invited on the next expedition. Water, or lack of it, was an issue because sources Stewart had found coming north were simply gone on the return march a few months later. This shocked Stewart. Water holes and creeks that had nourished the party coming north were now gone, At the Fink River, he found it almost completely dried up. It was a classic case of the fickle nature of the Australian interior at work. Thankfully, by mid August, as the company got further from the continent's interior, water was found much more readily. No matter the problems faced by the expedition, Stewart pushed his team hard on their return. They eventually reached the safety of Chambers Creek on August 23, 1860. A few days earlier in Melbourne, Robert O'Hara Burke led the mighty Victorian exploring expedition north. The expedition had great expectations, but little did they know that there was a lot of death and misery in store for all those involved. As for Stuart, he reached Adelaide in October of 1860, and while he had not crossed Australia, reaching the center of the continent was a huge achievement. He was awarded the Royal Geographical Society's Patron's Medal, becoming only the second person to receive both the Patron's Medal and a gold watch, the other being the famed explorer Dr. David Livingston. Stuart was feted at banquets and dinners, People said the Vale of Australia had been removed due to Stuart's feet, and he was compared to the other great explorers of the age. People said reaching the center of the continent was akin to finding the source of the Nile. So that is where we will leave things for today. The Victorian Exploring Expedition now had to jump on Stuart in their quest across the continent. But that won't stop Stuart from heading back into the breach. Next time we will kick things off with Stuart's fifth expedition, this one bigger and better financed and aiming across the continent. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Please go to airwavemedia.com to find other fascinating shows about history, science, pop culture, and other thought provoking topics, including the Pirate History podcast and This Week in Travel. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marvelled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt.